My name is Hilary Neroni. I'm a professor of film and television studies in the English department, and we are very excited today to um, introduce, I'm very excited to introduce our guest today is Slavoj Žižek. <laughs> Slovenia. He's a professor at the European Graduate School. He also has taught semester-long seminars at universities around the globe. One such seminar called Violence and Ethics was where I met him as a graduate student, now too long ago, it's been a while, <clears throat> where I learned that the image that he uses to describe himself as a professor who writes fake names into his office hour slots is completely false. He's a very generous teacher. <laughs> Sorry. As we saw this morning um, in his Q&A with students, he has published over 30 books, including Tearing with the Negative, Ticklish Subject, and The Parallax View. If I were to describe what his books do, I would say that they stage an engagement between philosophy and culture. In this engagement, he has a unique ability to see the speculative identity between, for example, let's say Hegel and the new film 2012, for example. Um, in light of this idea, I would like to tell you one brief story about him. One time, I ran into him at an airport where I actually think he does most of his writing these days. And I found him reading the recently released biography of Monica Lewinsky. <laughs> Upon seeing me, he joked that he should have had the dust jacket of Kant's The Critique of Pure Reason hiding the biography. But as his talk today will undoubtedly show, it only requires a slight change in perspective to see the one as the other. So please join me again in thanking Slavoj for coming today. Does this work? Okay. Thanks very much. I'm really glad to be here also to meet my old friends uh, Hillary and Todd. Just one correction, Hillary. That story was true. The problem was that students were annoying me at NYU. I was lucky enough to have many students who didn't know each other. So that you don't wait for office hours to put your names. You put your names there on your grid so that you know each takes 20 minutes, and then since they didn't know each other, I treated myself with invented names. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to the movie theater. <laughs> <laughs> it's not time to do your work. Yes, you know, for me, to be frank, university is a nice place without students. Okay, let's handle the crucial series. What I want to provide today is simply a couple of examples of practicing the old half-forgotten art of the critique of ideology. The shortest definition of what critique of ideology is was, I think, perhaps provided by Paul, the one from the Bible, who in Ephesians 6, 12 wrote, listen, I was trying to read this there. This is Paul. 
For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against leaders, against authorities, against the world rulers, cosmocratoras in Greek, of this darkness, against the wonderful expression, the spiritual wickedness in the heavens, end of quote. Or, to translate it into today's language, our struggle is not primarily against concrete corrupt individuals, but against those in power in general, against their authority, against the global order and the ideological mystification which sustains it. What then is ideology? When are we in ideology? Let me give you an example from my own public life. During a debate with Bernard Henri Levy at New York Public Library a year or so ago, uh, Henri Levy made a pathetic case for liberal tolerance. Something like, would you not like to live in a society where you can make fun of the predominant religion without the fear of being killed for it, where women are free to dress the way they like and choose a man they like and what they love and so on and so on. While I made a similarly pathetic case for communism, with the growing food crisis, ecological crisis and so on and so on, um, is there not a need to find a new way of collective action which radically differs from market as well as from state administration? So what happened? The irony of the situation was that when we both stated our case in such abstract terms, we both couldn't but agree with each other. What should I say? No, I want women to be oppressed, not to marry. <laughs> and even, Levy, uh, even Bernard Henri Levy, a hardline liberal, anti-communist, ironically remarked that if this is communism, what I said, even he is a communist. Now, this mutual understanding was the proof that we were both rooted in ideology. Ideology is precisely such a reduction to the simplified essence which conveniently forgets what comes up with it as the price to be paid. The, let's call it background noise, which provides the density of the actual meaning of a statement. This is why, for example, I claim you get now in our media, newspapers, TV, all those charity ads, you remember, some usually a black child or a, or a native child from Guatemala, from Africa, which I don't know, crippled, twisted, and so on, and then comes the message, something like, uh, something like, uh, you can make a difference for the price of a couple of cappuccinos or whatever, <laughs> change its life for the better. Why is this ideology? Because again, in abstract, of course, my God, we should all be doing it. What's wrong with it? What's wrong with it, I claim, is a concrete message in it, which is, if we read it a little bit cynically, you who are lucky to live relatively safe lives and so on and so on. I know you feel bad because of the hunger, the horrors and so on in which you, even in a not direct way, but indirectly participate. We offer you a simple way out. For the price of a couple of cappuccinos, you can even feel well for it, and you can forget about it. <laughs> the message is that you, I claim, we pay charity, charities not so much to help those out there, but to make sure that they remain there, that they come. Or another example of ideology. Uh, most of us probably are buying uh, organic food. Now, in itself, this is, of course, 
Okay. But ask yourself deeply, why are you really fighting? I don't think you really believe that all those half-rotten apples which cost twice the normal, we all love normal, genetically manipulated apples and so on, that they are really any less poisonous. Maybe they are. But I don't think this is why we buy it. There's a certain reflexivity in it. We buy organic apples because it makes you feel good. Our mother earth is in danger, I am part of a wonderful movement to do something. It's a sense of faith creativity. I think uh, of doing something without paying any serious price and so on and so on. So the, the first conclusion here is, you know, every, not only ideological, every field of meaning, or more specifically, every space of rules which regulate interaction within a certain community, from large national communities as to families and so on. I think that the rules in such a space are always, I should call them, two-level rules. You have the explicit rules, do this, don't do that, you may do this, and so on. And, this is for me crucial, you always get rules which a kind of a second level rules, rules which tell you how to deal with the explicit rules. This is why, give you a popular example, okay, today is no longer popular, uh, when ordinary people still thought that those from the upper classes have true manners, and they try to learn these manners, you have, you know, all those courses, we can teach you how to behave among the elite and so on. Why you always fail in, in learning those rules? Because you do learn the rules, but you do not learn the unwritten rules, which tell you how to violate the explicit rules. If you are a member of any community regulated in such rules, you know that to, to truly be in, you must not only follow the rules, but there is a very codified way, nothing contingent about it, of how to softly here and there Violate, violate the explicit rules in both directions. A, there are rules, prohibitions, which are literally meant not to be respected. Like, you are simply an idiot if you follow the rules. <laughs> now, this differs from different cultures. In some cultures, like pay the taxes and so on, if you don't try to avoid paying taxes, you are considered an idiot and so on. Or, especially in sexuality, for example, most of the prohibitions, the standard prohibitions, at least the conservative patriarchal ones, are basically half-hidden injunctions to do it, but do it discreetly. And it would be wonderful to but you don't have time to do it, to show you how ideology functions at this level, how official ideology is, are not only the explicit rules, which then you are allowed a space for, for, for playing a little bit within the resist, undermining. Official ideology is the entire space of what is explicitly said and the implicit. So, before I give you a couple of examples, just also the opposite case, which I find even more interesting. Uh, especially at universities, I don't know how it's here, maybe you are a, a big, uh, big exemption, but. Uh, uh, Everywhere where I was, I encountered much more interesting the opposite example. Things that you are not only allowed to do, but even 
solicited to do on condition that you don't do them. You know, to cut a long story short, you are given a certain freedom, but God help you if you take that too literally and you actually do it. The mystery is here, we don't have time to go into it, the mystery of appearance. Why don't those in power simply directly tell you you should do it? Why do they play this game of maintaining the appearances? For example, let's take a harsh totalitarian regime Soviet Union in the 1930s. I don't know if you know that in the Soviet Constitution of 34 or 35 when Stalin won, uh, not only was there guaranteed, it says bombastically, Soviet Union guarantees its citizenship, the right to organize a political party, it even says that the state has the duty to provide any group of citizens who want a political party with means to do it, with offices, with newspaper and so on and so on. Of course, if you just try to do it, you will arrest it. Why? Why this rule of appearances? And are we aware to what extent even our daily lives are penetrated with this, with this paradoxical condition? What is politeness? Politeness is precisely a complex network of making offers that you know they will be rejected. The example I use all the time. Let's say an older guy who has money, I don't mean a, a, a better guy, but just... <laughs> <laughs> invites you to dinner, it's clear absolutely to both of you that he will pay. Or she. But uh, is the usual ritual, at least in my country, I don't know how it's clear that, you know, when the bill check arise, for a little bit you have to resist. <laughs> now, yes, I know what you will say, and yes, it did happen to me. Once to resist a little bit too long. Okay, to resist and so on. But, you know, what's the mystery? You see the mystery? The mystery is that you both know that, that he will pay. But you both know that your offer, or mine in this case, to pay is in a way hypocritical. But we must go through this ritual. Or, I mean, there are, one cannot even cover all of the examples. And then we come to more mysterious examples of this soliciting pleasure, prohibitions which soliciting. For example, let me just take an obvious example, one of the great masterpieces of Western civilization. I hope you saw the movie, The Sound of Music. <laughs> oh, I don't get engage in the boring exercise of telling, okay, if you know the movie, you know probably which scene, at least I even now shocked at what kind of obscenity this scene really is. You remember the little bit less than crowd into the movie, Sister Maria who gets the crash to the Baron escapes back to the monastery she is in love with the Baron and cannot stand it and so on. There she still desires the Baron whose children she was serving and goes to the mother superior and tells her, like, what should I do? I still have sinful desires. Like, she goes there with the plea to be properly punished so that she will control her desires. No, like, I don't know, put me on fasting, whatever. And then comes the obscene moment. I hope you remember it. When Instead of admonishing her, the, 
I really couldn't believe it. The mother superior starts to sing a song. Remember this one? Climb every mountain and so on. It means almost literally, go back, seduce, and screw the guy.
to watch the movies. Nothing happens, they just talk and so on. But at the same time, I will give you very specifically all the series of signals so that you can do all your dirty imagination and so on and so on. I don't know if you know, but there is a short story by an author, I forgot who he was, who wrote a short story again called As Time Goes By, which focuses precisely on the paradox of this scene. It's a 20 pages short story where first it's the beginning of which scene Inger Bergman arrives. The last half a page is the conversation we hear. And in between 15 pages, extremely open hardcore of what they were doing. <laughs> the short story does even something really nasty. It reinterprets in the terms of hardcore pornography some of the sayings that we know, these legendary sayings from the movie. You know, we all know, uh, 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 we all know this famous Humphrey Bogart phrase with this lady, uh, here's to you, kid. You know how it that happens? In the middle of lovemaking, he gives her, her his, his penis to her mouth and says, here's to you, kid. <laughs> <laughs> but now, you know what they now say? Now I know what they're now, and okay, my <coughs> this is what makes us subjects of power. There's absolutely nothing, but no, we didn't screw, we didn't squeeze their balls of the book. We played their games. Ideology is not just the explicit story. It's not just nothing happens, and then you think you play some subversive games, whatever, by imagining. Ideology needs both levels, the explicit and the unspoken obscenity. This is how this is how I read, not in any American version way, in the way I came in Europe, we are even worse, uh, what happened in Abu Ghraib. I claim that what those guys in prison there by annoyed, torturing, the prisoners, they were actively staging there this obscene underground other side of not only military, I, mean, I, I, even, I even claim maybe cultural life, namely you remember when the first photos from Abu Ghraib came out? You remember the famous one, one of the prisoners like in Putin's clan dresses attached to some uh, corpse and so on? I did an experiment. I showed that photo to a friend of mine who was at some holiday, didn't see this photo. And I asked him, what is this? He told me, when in New York, it sounds like some off-off Broadway avant-garde. <laughs> you know, Again, our army, Yugoslav army, actually Yugoslav army was even worse, but for you, you know all these military rituals, fragging, the obscenity of songs, uh, this is what always fascinated me. For example, this so-called, I think, maybe I'm wrong, they are called marching camps. You know these songs that Marines or other soldiers sing while marching, complaining, and which are very interesting. They combine open vulgarities, brutal obscenities with nonsense rights. Like, okay, an innocent one, I think it's from the movie Officer and Gentleman. Something like, I don't know, but I was told that Eskimo pussies are rather cold. Total nonsense. But again, my point is this is not just something that happens by in a close military community. That's the, the point of true identification. When you want to learn to analyze how a certain closed community functions, 
Don't look at the explicit rules. Look at this as it were secret uh, rituals and so on and so on. And again, please, don't accuse me of America bashing. If anything, what happened to me or what I was witnessing in ex yugoslav army, it's too much to say here. Okay, so let me go on. The next point I want to make here is that this is why, you know, when you analyze a community, when you witness something that we may call spontaneous transgressive outbursts, like, or transgressive behavior, when you say, oh, enough of it and you explode in whatever way, I think we should not take this as a spontaneous outburst in contrast to rules. No, these so-called spontaneous outbursts are absolutely even more maybe also regulated by rules. They are not a matter of spontaneous enjoyment. No, they have to be learned. The more transgressive capitalistic they appear, they have to be learned. Let me just take two, three supreme cases. Smoking. How, maybe you do remember, I don't because I'm a madman, not because uh, I didn't, I never smoked in my life, but don't take me for a crazy guy, not because I wanted to remain poor, because I just don't like it, I don't know. But all my friends told me, and I, in the same thing, you know how it usually happened when you were first seduced if you were into smoking? Usually it was a kind of a small transgressive initiative experience, you know, like you are going to elementary school, some friend tell you, this is what others do try and so on. And it's always the same story. First you start talking you didn't like, it very disgusting. Then you literally have to learn to enjoy as part of the democratic ritual. Again, it's the same with drinking. Everyone who tries whiskey for the first time, the first reaction is always, it's bitter, it's disgusting. Then you learn you have to enjoy it. And it's clear that to enjoy it, if you drink for pleasure, you, you don't drink whiskey, my God. You drink some stupid fruit. <laughs> The deepest level is not pleasure, it's some kind of a more, some kind of a transgressive perverted duty. I mean, if you want pure pleasure, masturbation is much better. <laughs> so, what I would say is that, uh, uh, is that uh, uh, you see, this makes the whole of culture. How you obey the rules of all those transgressive carnival adults, uh, uh, adults, whatever, and so on and so on. Incidentally, as an amusing remark, I think the same even goes for music lovers. For example, I love classical music, and I have many friends who love, but love it. And how do you signal that you are really in part of a, an elite circle? It's not by if you follow the commonly accepted judgments, you appear an idiot. The way to do is to take a great, I'm not giving you instructions, take a great composer but ignore his masterworks. Like you say Beethoven, I like the Ninth Symphony, I like the late string quarters, you are a barbarian. and some others, we even wanted to do a book, we just didn't get enough collaborators.
parameters of playing this game with Alfred Hitchcock's film. The idea was each of us should select, each of us should select um, a, uh, a Hitchcock's film, which is obviously a failure, and play the game, ah, but this is the true massacre. <laughs> Fred's selection was stage fright, that failure from 48-49 with Marlene Dietrich. Mine was even the lowest you can go. Uh, uh, Topaz, that anti-communist uh, uh, drama, whatever, from, uh, uh, from the 60s. So this is uh, complication. So if we return from this short detour to my basic point, so we take into account these complications. How does ideology function today, especially with regard to the claim that we live in post-ideological era? I claim that, and I will try to explain why, ideology today appears as its own opposite, as non-ideology, as the reference to the core of our human identity beneath all ideological labels. This is how it works in art, in politics. You can be sure you are in ideology when somebody says, listen, let's forget about all the stupid political and religious labels. Ultimately, are we not ordinary human beings? We all share the same fears, the same passions, and so on and so on. Uh, to give you an example of this <coughs> the best example I can think of is a book recently translated into English, which was a tremendous bestseller, first in France, then in Germany, now here also. Uh, Jonathan Vittel, Le Bien Veillon, I think the translation is the kindly one. So it's uh, slightly too long, almost 1,000 pages. First person narrative of a Holocaust, of a Holocaust, <coughs> a mid-level SS officer who did it all, but of course, in a consciously provocative way, the book presents him as a normal, warm human being like all of us. He has his fears, he's sometimes disgusted, you see all his doubts, fears, and so on and so on. And of course, the book does not justify him, but the, 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 the insight of the book is a deeper one, I think. It is that, you know, Hannah Arendt, already made a similar point as was right. When you are witnessing terrifying acts, don't fall into the trap of thinking that behind the acts you will encounter some kind of a demonic entity, a superman of evil. <coughs> ordinary beings with all their fears and so on. You know, everybody, as we put it, has a human side. Stalin loved her daughter, Hitler liked to talk to children, giving them chocolate, whatever, and so on and so on. We are all humans. And here comes my next conclusion, which I think I will try to show immediately why has even political implications. Uh, if there is the, a most basic lesson of psychoanalysis, it is that what we usually refer to as the wealth of our inner lives. There is nothing authentic about it. This is constitutively, a priori, almost a lie. You know this famous postmodern deconstructionist, whatever, definition, anti-substantialist definition of human identity, in the sense of 
We are nothing but stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves. I think it's not quite true, because we are telling these stories, but these stories are fundamentally lies to obfuscate the reality, the reality of what we are doing. What do I mean by it? You remember the, uh, a saying and allegedly deep thought, which I think was pronounced in a, uh, by a partisan of the Middle East dialogue. It sounds so deep. Listen, an enemy is someone whose story you have not heard. It sounds very deep, you know, like I stigmatize you as an enemy because I wasn't able to listen to you. I just reify you as some monster. Then if I listen to your side of the story, I see you are human like me, you have your dreams, your fears, and so on, and I see you as a human being. This is all very nice. It has a limit. The limit is what? Well, we reach this limit when we simply replace the general term enemy with a concrete name. Would you also say Adolf Hitler was our enemy because we were not ready to hear his story? No, the answer is his story was just a lie which he made to justify and at the same time avoid the horror of what he was doing. And this is incidentally almost the most difficult thing to do, and the most tragic even, when you <coughs> analyze a certain ideological constellation. You know, uh, the, for example, I recently read a book, I forgot who wrote it, I bought it at some uh, book says, uh, The Nazi Ethic. No, it wasn't meant as a society. The book did something that is absolutely crucial to do. It looked at how did the Nazis justified to themselves what they were doing. And of course you find a very, sometimes very beautiful narrative, full of almost, I can say, authentic insights, and so on, and so on. But again, the proof is not there. That's on what I insist. It's not that when I want to judge you, the rule is I should look deep into you, I should try to understand what you thought you were doing of course I should, but I will not arrive at any fundamental proof in this way. I will rather arrive at something that I tempted to call the fundamental lie. The scheme that you construct to yourself. Uh, this is why we have all these horrible examples. Take the architect of the Holocaust, uh, 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 Reinhard Heidegger, before he was killed in Prague in '42. You know what's so shocking, reading, uh, reading the biography of this guy? Do you know that in his spare time, he was meeting with three other friend officers of SS. He was a very good violin player, and they were playing in a string quartet, late Beethoven's string quartets, which are maybe one of the top tops of the classical music. Now, what I tragically claim is that uh, you cannot say, oh, but it must have been non-attentive. No, that's very difficult to accept. Maybe he played them with the real authenticity, blah, blah, and nonetheless, he was able to do it. And okay, I will not repeat here my old examples, but I have many of them even more tragic. For example, uh, in the West, it's my old story, maybe you don't know it. Uh, did you read all those Huxley uh, great eminence? It's a wonderful historical research into uh, early 17th century French politician, priest, Père Joseph, Father Joseph. He was a counselor to Cardinal Richelieu at the time of the Thirty Years' 
war in Europe, which devastated Europe terribly, 1618 to 1648, with Protestants and Catholics. If there is a guy who can be retroactively isolated as the origin of Nazism, it's this guy, Philip Johann. Because what he did is that he concluded a pact between uh, France and Protestant Sweden against Catholic Austrian Empire, just to prevent the unification of Germany. And he succeeded, which is why Germany delayed its constitution as a nation state, which was the ultimate condition of First World War and then Second World War. So, again, the meanest politician ordering tortures, poisoning, prisons, whatever. Uh, but now comes the horrible thing, which fascinated all the facts. In the evening, metaphorically, after doing his dirty work, he wrote the most beautiful uh, mystical meditations. Absolutely at the level of who are our, the biggest hits, St. Teresa, and so on and so on. And this is what bothered Aldous Huxley. Is it possible? How could a guy who was obviously an authentic mysticist, how could he have been doing that? Huxley thought it's not possible. There must have been something false, not only in his mystic, but also in uh, Christianity itself, for creating this so Huxley thought Zen Buddhism, Orientalism is better. I'm not saying it's worse, but I'm saying it's not even better. It's not better. Again, read the book to which I refer always. Uh, uh, it's a guy called Brian Victoria, who is himself a Zen Buddhist Zen at war. He looks at how the Zen community in Japan, around a little bit over 10 million of them, I think, related to uh, Japanese war imperialism in the 30s and 40s, attack on China and so on. What he noticed is that they were all justified. Not large majority. Not only this, so not only supporting it, but actively justifying it. For example, one, a guy whom many of you maybe know, because he was popular when we were young, in the hippie times, D.T. Tyson Steitaro Suzuki, the great popularizer of Zen in the West. Yes, in the late 30s he was writing texts where he not only justified Japanese aggression on China, he even tried to provide through Zen Buddhism instructions into how to cope with the act of killing. His idea was that for us ordinary people with the minimum of decency, you know, it's not so easy to kill. Like, you can dream of killing, but you have a concrete person in front of you, it can be difficult to stab the person. So he mobilized the entire Zen machinery, and he said, this happens only if you remain caught within the illusion of false reality where you know the story. You think you are the agent, you believe in substantial reality, but he says, if you reach the level of the story of Buddhist enlightenment, then things appear in a different way. If you are still caught into the limits of your false self, then you experience it like you are there and here I am now stabbing you. This is horrible. But then he says, if I reach enlightenment and see the vanity of substantial realities, then I can experience the same scene in a totally different way. Something like, I'm for nothing in it. I'm a pure observer. I don't, not even I don't. Here is my hand moving around in an impersonal dance, and as a part, as a part of the same dance, your body gets stuck into it. I'm for nothing. And then, don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not blaming Suzuki. He was authentic. The lesson is just I don't see any continuity as it creates any necessary link between between our inner experience, authentic as it may be, and the story may be the social consequences, the horror of what we are doing. I claim that fundamentally our innermost identity, in the sense of the stories we are telling ourselves about ourselves, are not the truth. They are even as a rule alive. In this sense, I claim, this withdrawal from external reality in the sense of let's look into the depth of your personality, you as a concrete human being, is false. And so let's go to give you another example, to the very opposite end of uh, the Nazis, and I'm not claiming in any way that they are the same, quite on the contrary. But to see how, of course, as much more modest at the level, but nonetheless, we find something similar, for example, in today's uh, Israel. Let's look at the movies. Did you see the last two Israeli films which were a big success about the 1982 Lebanon war? Ari Folman's animated documentary Waltz with Bashir and Samuel Maoz's Lebanon. Lebanon is especially typical here. You know it presents the experience of an ordinary Israeli soldier in the Lebanon war when he was in a tank penetrating deep into Lebanon. And almost the entire movie is shot from the perspective within, inside a tank. All the horrors, the claustrophobia, and so on and so on. I think this is ideology at its purest, because under the pretext of forget about ideology, war is horrible, we need that horrible experience, nonsense. You know, all the historical background, what was he doing there? Who was he killing? Children and so on. It all disappears. All of a sudden, it becomes the story of your inner suffering, fears of your inner experience, and so on and so on. So it's pretty sad to report how Israeli army, I know because I was there, I have there many friends, I'm not often there. So IDF, Israeli Defense Forces, play this game endlessly. For example, uh, they don't present themselves as superheroes, like, you know, who one battalion of us can take Cairo in one afternoon if we want, and so on. No, they always emphasize uh, war is not in our genes. We are human like you. We are afraid. We urine. I remember long interviews in the movie, which I think is ideology at its purest, you know Klopp Langsman Shoah. But you know, he did later another movie called Tahal, which is the name for Israeli Defense Forces. This endless interview along the model of Shoah with Israeli soldiers, their memories about the 73 Yom Kippur War. And it's all about this concrete experience. They, they tell how they even urinated, they were totally scared, like an endless variation of we are human. But I claim this precisely allows you to obliterate the political consequences of what you are doing and so on. Uh, let me give you another example which I must say really shocked me. Uh, when I was in Israel, they reported of a strange incident. Uh, a group of anti-terrorist soldiers entered an apartment where they suspected uh, that uh, an alleged terrorist is hiding. They found only his family there, wife and children. Among the children, a daughter, of course, terrified that soldiers breaking in, started to cry, and the mother, to calm her down, uh, 
uh, called her by her name. Her name and because, and then one of the Israeli soldiers breaking in discovered that he has a daughter with the same name. And of course, he pulled out his wallet and so you see mother, I have the same daughter, I have the same name, you see the message, oh we are human and so on and so on. But I think in that object, in that situation this was an obscenity. You know, to emphasize in that sense humanity. So again, the now, so that you will not say that I'm only taking, as it were, uh, Nazis and, God forbid, to confuse them, Israelis, I will also give you an interesting example the, uh, from the opposite side politically. Uh, uh, you know that in today's Cuba, they have a certain even relatively, at high level, quality detective novel. Some, the biggest, their biggest export name is a writer called Leonardo Padura Fuentes, who writes police procedurals, four of them or even five are translated, you can get them in better bookstores. Uh, the hero is Mario Condé, uh, police officer in today's Havana. The books are so critical, I mean critical, at least in the sense of presenting all the misery of today's Cuba. They are a lost generation, uh, misery, hunger, prostitution, nepotism and so on. So that I thought, my God, it would be nice to visit this guy in a nice villa in the suburbs of Miami or what. <laughs> I was surprised to learn that no, he is, uh, he is, he is in Cuba, and not even as a craft dissident. He is totally accepted, supported by state media and so on. So I asked myself, what's going on? And I think it's, it is from the standpoint of their interest, Cuban authorities are right in supporting him. Because, you know, in spite of all the criticism, the basic message at this human level of, of Leonardo Padura is what? It is, okay, we screwed it up. It's a misery. We are a lost generation, and so on. But the true patriot hero takes this with bitterness but heroism. Don't dream about Miami. We are from here. We should heroically go on here. You know, this totally without without any, apparently in a totally non-ideological way, like cut the bullshit of socialism and so on. But nonetheless, you know, be faithful to you, stay here, don't escape into dreams, and so on and so on. It's, I claim, a, a, a really, really very refined mode of ideology. Where do you find a similar ideology? Now we go to more crazy workers, a little bit on politics. Maybe you know this part, then I will go to other examples. My first example would have been, uh, did you see the movie, I did it six times, because of my, Kung Fu Panda. I think it's a perfect, almost clinical example of how we function in our societies. Uh, if you saw the movie, you know, the big fat, Kung Fu Panda called Po uh, 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 wants to become a, a warrior, sorry, Panda called Po wants to become a Kung Fu warrior and succeeds, but okay. The point is that the movie moves at two levels. First, you have all these Orientalist, Western Buddhist uh, elements, you know, faith, choice, fidelity, hero, and so on. All these religious, military background. At the same time, you must have noticed how the movie is full of most the commonsensical, brutal humor, jokes, 
at its own expense, at the expense of, of this ideology. It makes fun continuously of these Buddhist wisdoms and so on and so on. But that's something extremely interesting, which is that in spite of all this ideology, this pseudo-Buddhist mystique survives. You can make fun of it, but nonetheless it functions. And this is the mystery. This is, I think, how beliefs function today. Nobody really believes. If you ask anyone, do you believe? Everyone will tell you, you are you crazy, what do they believe? But beliefs, first of all, they socially function. We have the paradox of beliefs which, as it were, circulate. Nobody believes in them, but they function. The one who first provided this formula was and I appreciate her for that, was the Israeli Prime Minister Golda Meir. You know, when she was asked, do you believe in God? You know what she said? It's a nice formula. She said, uh, uh, she didn't answer, she just said, Jewish people believe in God and I believe in Jewish people. <laughs> you know what this means? This is not the usual Stalinist logic, where your reasoning is uh, ordinary people will to believe. No, I claim nobody has to believe, and belief functions. How does this function? Let's take the most simple example. Imagine uh, Christmas. Of course you don't believe in Santa Claus. My God, you have to provide yourself the presents. <laughs> when somebody asks you, do you believe in Santa Claus? Uh, you probably say, no, I just pretend because of my children, not to disappoint them. Now, if I ask alone, not in front of you, your children, I'm sure they will say, of course I don't believe, I just pretend not to disappoint my parents and <laughs> the presents. And it goes on endlessly, I claim. So you can get, you see, a belief functions as element of a social network. It functions except although even if nobody effectively in the first person believes. And this message is wonderfully formulated at the end of Kung Fu Panda. Where <coughs> the panda looks for the secret ingredient that would make him a hero. In his ordinary life, he just helps his father who runs a restaurant where they make a special soup, noodle soup. And father claims that he, there is a special ingredient to that soup. And at the end, the father tells him the secret. There is no special ingredient. It's only you. To make something special, you just have to believe it's special. And then he discovers it's the same for becoming a warrior. This means precisely what I was saying. There is no special belief, no special quality. It functions even if you know that there is nothing. It functions if you, as it were, follow it as if it functions. This is how our beliefs function today. At the cynical level, you can laugh at everything, but I claim that nonetheless beliefs function, like, I'm again sorry if I repeat a story which I'm repeating all around for 14 years. Uh, Niels Bohr, quantum physics, probably you know it, made a wonderful comment. Uh, he had a country in the, a house in the countryside of Denmark, an old wooden farmer's house with, above the entrance door, a horseshoe. I don't know how it is here, in Europe, a horseshoe <coughs> above the entrance doors is a superstitious sign preventing evil spirits to enter the house. So a friend, another scientist, visited him and said, but wait a minute, are you stupid? I mean, why do you have this? Do you believe in it? Means God said, of course not. Then the friend asked him,
but why do you have it here? You know what Nils Bohr answered? I, of course, I don't believe in it, that this really prevents evil spirits entering. But he said, but I have it there because I was told that it works even if you don't believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody believes in democracy, blah, blah, blah. But he somehow accepted at the social level that it works. So again, before we dismiss fundamentalism and all that as crazy people who believe, let's first set the things straight. I claim that we believe in a way more than ever just in this more impersonal, in this more impersonal way. From here, one, one could have go on in analyzing Hollywood as a path towards uh, our ideological constellation. And there is another feature which is, I think, pretty crucial in Kung Fu Panda. No lady, no girl, no love interest. All you have in the universe of Panda is this mystical wisdom and then a kind of, a, how should I call it, oral, oral, pre-sexual pre primitivity. The, the drive of the hero, the, the panda, is not <coughs> sex, power, is eating. He eats like a pig. The oral animal economy is so typical, I don't know how many the authors, they are not idiots, they are aware of it. That, uh, you know, he is called Po, P-O. I mean, in German, Po is a common term for S, no word. I mean, so, uh, what I'm saying is that uh, sexuality is excluded. And I don't know what this means, but did you notice how in many recent films, and I'm not saying this simply means less sexuality, I don't know what it is, sexual, uh, Hollywood starts to violate its own old rule of, how should I call it, of uh, creating the couple. Uh, for example, this was what was so mysterious in uh, Da Vinci Code. You know, already years ago, a friend of mine, French, sorry, British Lacanian psychoanalyst, Daniel Winter, told me something wonderful. He told me, you remember X-Files, if you watch some of them. He provided a wonderful formula for X-Files. He said, why do all these things happen out there? You know the formula, the truth is out there. Here an alien, there an alien. He says, to cover up the fact that nothing goes on here, between the two of them. No, no sense. So all this has to happen because... And I claim it's exactly the same formula for the Vinci Code. It is the movie. Poor Jesus Christ has to screw Mary or what to cover up the fact that they don't do it. It's <laughs> notice. Okay, it's between Tom Hanks and uh, who is the French girl that I don't like, uh, whatever. It's not like her. No sex here. Uh, and then it goes further. In movies, even more than in the novels, take the earlier novel, uh, Angels and Demons, the way it was made into a movie, if you saw it, again, no sense. Although, the girl is quite, quite if you allow me a sexist remark, quite nice, but uh, <laughs> nothing happens, no sense. And then, if you read, I did, I almost killed myself. It's, it's novels, and I measure him. Dan Brown by his own standards. It's so bad, this lost symbol. But you remember there, it's just another older lady. There is not even a minimal, a minimal sexual tension. I find this very strange. What is happening in, in Hollywood that they are 
that they are moving in this direction. Because I even found the same, did you notice that the same happens for the first time in entire James Bond, in the last James Bond, Quantum of Solace? No sense. Just at the end, they discover their vote to shatter or whatever. So, uh, why am I saying this? Because one of the standard formulas of Hollywood, which I developed in now from is that whenever you have a big dramatic story, it can be about the end of the world or whatever, it's always enframed by the logic of creating a couple. Like, it goes up to 2012. The subtitle of 2012 could have been how a young, what is he, failed writer, John Cusack, lost and regains his wife and so on. To, to, to make it, to go further, even two couples are created. The daughter, Tandy Newton, also gets a good color guy. So that, uh, but, uh, so, uh, this formula, how it gradually disappears. And it plays a, a, a crucial role, this formula. What I'm saying is not that simply we should obliterate all the historical background, fighting the Nazis and so on. But it's that what makes the film, as it were, attractive, the cause of our desire, is this apparently marginal feature that all the official topic of the movie, which is in the foreground, you know, how to break the Nazi code, is generated our interest because it's always in this kind of a dialogue, constant dialogue which is framed, which is the enigma of sexual relationship, the enigma of a woman, and so on and so on. Okay, let me now go on to my final, or slowly approaching the end, uh, element, which is uh, what if we live in this so-called post-ideological era, where you say, forget about big ideological phrases, be authentically who you are, enjoy life, and so on, or as we put it today, because I think our predominant ideology today is more some kind of enlightened hedonism, which is decapitated Dalai Lama. Dalai Lama popularized, you know, be true yourself, realize your potentials, and so on. I think uh, what is the reason for it is that we found ourselves in a stage which can be called cultural capitalism. I think something did change with capitalism after 68. Capitalism somehow integrated all the critique, critique of consumerism, alienation, and so on, and function in a new function, in a new way. Now, the two dimensions which were in now opposed, on the one hand, the dimension of your consumerism, I want this product to enjoy it, and so on, and the dimension of caring for society, let's call it the, the, the altruistic, humanitarian, ideological dimension, they are more and more combined. How? Well, if you visit Starbucks, you will immediately notice it. Because Starbucks is maybe the company which most directly exploits this. They are masters in it. You know what they are doing. All the time they are bombarding you by something like, when you buy a cappuccino with us, you don't buy just a cappuccino. You buy much more. And they enumerate it. Hey, you buy an authentic community. They, look, they openly manipulate Starbucks, this ideological cliche that in our societies we no longer town councils or public places, they are no longer here, we are just isolated individuals. The idea is we will provide 
an ersatz community for you. Then they go on. We only grow our uh, coffee beans from organic, we only buy from organic farms. We give money there to educate, to bring water to them. And so, you know, the idea being all this, I cannot but call it uh, uh, semantic density. Like, you don't just buy a coffee. You are made aware that you buy a whole ideological experience of caring for others and so on and so on. Uh, uh, I claim that, uh, then we, that this is absolutely crucial for today's capitalism, that this is where cons consumerism tries to recuperate its own opposite. You know, it's no longer I do this, I consume, but I have to do something else to do something good. No, it's they offer you a much better choice of consume and you will at the same time act as a humanitarian, caring for mother nature, caring for others, and so on and so on. This formula reached recently almost in climax with two cases. First, maybe you've heard about Tom's Shoes, a company founded in 2006 for shoes. Their formula is one for one, as they call it. They claim for every pair of shoes you buy with them, another pair of shoes will be given to, again, some starting children, I don't know where, and so on and so on. It's a wonderful formula gives you, and it is, you may engage in consumerism because the more you do it, the more also those who are excluded profit by it. Or another upshot, Coca-Cola, uh, sorry, Pepsi, recently started uh, publicity uh, uh, with the formula, I quote it, Pepsi was always about refreshment, but what if instead of just refreshing people, Pepsi helps to refresh the world? So the idea is that uh, when you buy a coke, you get the right to vote, to send your ideas about what to do to help people. And then when these ideas will be gathered, they will be then put to vote, and you will be able to choose which idea, having starving people here, preserving nature there, will be, will be, put, will be put to use. So even have, even if you even have the, as it were, the element of democracy here. Uh, what are the further consequences of it? Here with Pepsi, of course, Pepsi plays to the end the logic of what, what one cannot call but uh, uh, the logic of freedom of choice. And with this I would like to conclude because I think that the fight that we have now in the United States, this ideological fight about healthcare reform, is an important fight because what it focuses on is precisely the freedom of choice. And things are complex here. Okay, do not misunderstand me. I'm totally on the side of those who are for the reform. What I just wanted to say is that effectively, uh, you know, in what sense things are getting complex today. In the good old days, the main argument against the ideology of free choice was this vulgarized Marxist one. Yes, we are given choices, but only the unimportant choices, Pepsi or Coke or whatever. We are not given the real choices. This is up to a point true. But I think in some sociologists, like the German one, Ulrich Bennett, in his well-known book on the recent society, they, I don't agree wholly with them, but they nonetheless pointed out something. And how the status of choice risk catastrophes change today. It changed in what way? In the sense that today we perceive as 
risks in our era of new uncertainties, not, only, not simply something which will hit us from outside, like a gigantic asteroid or whatever. We are more and more aware that there may be risks which we are generated or threats by our own activity. So, you see, the problem is not so much that we don't have a choice, but that we have a choice, but, and I don't think here, I am critical of the big companies, that we can simply put all the blame on the big companies, but the situation is simply not transparent. Okay, basically, of course, I accept the, the global warming argument, but things are so, you know, we are, it's not that we have too much, too much power, okay, humanity as such. We, the consequences of our own activity are impenetrable to ourselves. We are effectively, we are so strong that we can even change nature, but we are not aware of how are we doing. For example, I, I got a message recently from a friend from China who told me that even this big earthquake, you remember a year and a half ago when they were in the Sichuan province inside the big earthquakes. And they now more and more, they don't make it public, but nonetheless more and more admit that these earthquakes were probably the product of human activity. You know how? You remember China is building those gigantic three gorges dams or what? The idea is that the gigantic lakes they created have changed so much <coughs> the pressure, pressure on different strata there that they, if not caused, the earthquake at least contributed to it. So again, that's the first element of radical insecurity today. And uh, the second point I want to emphasize here is how, and this is again ideology that is purest, how the very uncertainties caused by the gradual dismantling of welfare state are then sold to us as new freedoms. For example, we all know that more and more we are forced to make just one to three years contracts. It's more and more difficult to get a long-term job. But instead of, then we are told, why don't, instead of being afraid of it, why don't you take this as a new opportunity to reinvent yourself every two, three years to make a choice and so on and so on? Or with healthcare. At least in Europe, where they are also slowly, we already had it, dismantling well, uh, healthcare. <coughs> the reasoning is, again, this gives you new choices. This gives you a choice to choose. You know, do you want to spend more and take a risk or do you want to be absolutely sure, spend less, whatever, and so on and so on. This, I think, is ideology that is curious. Why? Uh, because, a little bit, two, three points only, almost old-fashioned Marxist points I want to make here. As it is clear, not only to Marxists, but even to old-fashioned communitarians and so on. You know, freedom, actual freedom of choice, personal freedoms that we all cherish, is something which works only more and more in our complex society only against the background of the very complex network of state guarantees, rules, uh, uh, customs, civility, and so on and so on. Do you know how many 
things has to function in the background so that you have your freedom. And I think that if you approach it in this way, then universal healthcare, if anything, provides for people much more freedom. In what sense? The comparison I'm tempted to make is with water and electricity. <coughs> I mean, you probably notice that all of us, maybe in some states or cities it's different, but I think practically everywhere, everywhere you are brutally deprived of the freedom of choice then, no? Where you live, you simply connect to water, to electricity, but most of you would have said, okay, if they rip me off too much, I will protest, but you don't want to say, oh, I want a choice here. And your life would become a nightmare. Certain things should simply function in the background so that where it really matters, you have choices. Of course, water and electricity really matter. But you prefer having them back there, not to deal with them. I claim it would immensely raise the level of actual choices, freedoms, and so on, if at least a basic healthcare acquires a little bit of this status. You know what I mean? You don't have to worry about it. It's in the background. This doesn't mean in any way in what way should be done, and so on and so on. So now, really to conclude, once I started a talk with, let me conclude. But what happens when this invisible background disintegrates of institutional guarantees, of customs, and so on and so on? Well, something very sad happens. Something, the first preview of what we can get in a movie which some people whom I know recently made, there is not yet a premiere even, so I'm not even supposed to talk about this movie because some of the people who have, who have made this movie are threatened. You will see the device. It's a Danish documentary, Free Men When Killers Make Movies, made by a small Copenhagen in Denmark house. It's about a group of ex-killers in, from Medan, Indonesia. It was shot in 2007. In this film, uh, they, it shows a group led by a guy called Anwar Congo. They were, maybe you don't know, but in, in uh, 66, communists tried a coup d'etat there, and then the right-wing generals counteracted, and then in the aftermath, there was, people estimated this around two and a half million of suspected communists, most of them of Chinese origins, were killed. Now, this movie tells the story of one of the group of these murderers. What is so shocking about the movie is that it tells the story in an open way. You know what I mean? Like, the murderers don't tell it secretly and so on. They publicly boast about it. Like, with pride, they say, they, and it's shattering. Like, you see them, who are now rich businessmen, senators, journalists, and so on, they answer all the questions. When they are asked, how did you usually rape women? They describe it. It took them some time to discover the most pleasurable way that usually the girl should be on a table back, and then you ask a friend with a wire right around her neck to hold her down and strangle her slowly and so on. Then they ask how did they torture men. They describe what's the most practical way, cut off their balls, make the guy swallow his own balls, all that nice stuff. 
And, and they do this publicly and open. There is even, at the end, a TV show that really took place in Indonesia on one of the state TV channels, which is the ultimate of obscenity that I've seen. In this TV show, the, uh, these criminals are in front of a large audience, ask, answer questions, and so on, and then the moderator celebrates him, like they ask a guy, how did you torture, blah, blah. And the guy says, oh, I, in this way, it's the most practical way to torture women. And the moderator says, a big applause for the gentleman here for this nice insight, and so on, and so on. Second caricature, you, you know, usually this happens in this bad taste leftist dystopias, where they imagine some future totalitarian society. It happens there. And the question is, again, how is something like this possible? Because the movie up to a point answers Because all these guys loved Hollywood when they were young, but I'm not blaming Hollywood for them. And the way they were able to do it, they imagined themselves, as they said, James Kenny and Humphrey Bogart were their two heroes. They imagined themselves as imitating Hollywood heroes, tough guys, gangsters, and so on. Again, I'm not blaming here Bollywood, but I'm also not blaming here the primitive Indonesian culture, like you know those idiots there and so on. No, I'm saying that it has more something to do with how the ongoing capitalist globalization undermines our standard traditional ethical ethics <laughs> and creates a certain moral vacuum. And my point is that uh, this is the first battle to be won, as it were. Don't think that ideology doesn't matter today. Precisely today, in our utmost cynical era and so on, we are more deeper in ideology than we ever were. Ideology, again, as I pointed out, is not only the explicit rules, it's all beliefs that we obey without believing in them, all the obscene, implicit rules, and so on and so on. And it is very difficult to withdraw from it, because you pay the price for it. It hurts, as it were. Which is why, what if you really want to do something today? You should not succumb too quickly to this idea of children are starving, let's do something. Yeah, of course we should, but first we should change ourselves. First we should put in order our, our dreams. We should start here. Otherwise, this is for me to put it in very naive terms, the reason of the failure of the 20th century revolutions. I have no mercy for Soviet Union and so on. They won, but they didn't win in the dreams they were dreaming. No, then you end up with what you end up with what you end up here because do not just a concluding variation do not forget how important things are let's take the ultimate ideological dream anti-semitism of course we all know and today I claim we leave so that let me make it okay first nonetheless I want to make it clear where I stand here uh, I still think that anti-Semitism is ideology by excellence and cannot, cannot ever be justified. But I, nonetheless, not in spite of this, but because of this, I think one should absolutely also be critical of what goes on in today's Israel. 
for example, my thesis is a crazy one here, but I presented it in Israel. <coughs> Zionism is the, today's Zionism is the ultimate stage of anti-Semitism. In what sense? He said, yeah, I to him, and there was a big public debate in, I think, Jerusalem, where I was defending a friend of mine, uh, anti-Zionist uh, Jewish filmmaker, Udi Aloni, and then people in the public attacked me, claiming, but listen, you are a famous philosopher, this guy is nobody. Are you aware that this guy just wants to exploit you for money? That this guy really doesn't care? Then others accuse this guy of not being really one of them, Jews. That he's just floating around the world. Then I told them, are you aware that you are describing this guy in exactly the same terms the late 19th century anti-Semites, nation-state fighters, were describing the Jew? They are only for money, they don't really have roots in their community, and so on and so on. Uh, but, uh, okay, but nonetheless, back to this uh, uh, anti-Semitic image. You know, it's not enough to say, but Jews are not like that. You should fight anti-Semitism not only at the level of facts, as every racism, but also at the level of dreams, fantasies, and so on. You know, because if you accept the debate at the level of facts, are Jews really like that, and so on, it's over, again. You will achieve nothing. Imagine debating with somebody in Germany in 36, if that, the anti-Semitic Nazi image of Jews, is true or not. The result will be somewhere in the middle. Like, the anti-Semites accused Jews both of exploiting the Germans. My God, some Jews were big. So, in a certain sense, they were exploiting Germans. So, all you can say at this level is it's not as bad as the Nazis claim, but there is some truth in it. Okay, they claim Jews corrupt, seduce sexually our German girls. Well, again, probably it was totally true. Why not? Of course. So, you see my point. The true question is not are Jews really like that? The true question is, why does the anti-Semitic subject need the figure of the Jew? And here I am tempted to repeat Jacques Lacan's wonderful ironic statement when he says um, that uh, when a husband is jealous of his wife, that she sits around with other that his jealousy is pathological, even if it's true that his wife is doing this. Because what makes it pathological, it's not is it true or not, but why does in order to maintain, as it were, his, the consistency of his subjectivity, why does he need that husband, a wife who is cheating him, or an anti-Semitic German, why does he need in order to maintain the consistency of his subjectivity, why does he need such a figure of the two? So to conclude in this wonderful formula of Jacques Lacan in Seminar 11, when he says, the picture that I see is my eye, it's my fantasy, but I am also in the picture. So, of course, the anti, the, the, the racist, anti-Semitic picture of the Jew is a fantasy in the eye of the anti-Semitic subject. But anti-Semitic subject is also in his own picture, in the sense of his very identity is constructed by this, relies on this fantasy. You take his fantasy, his dream away, he in a way loses everything, enters the meaningless universe, is totally to reconstruct 
himself, which is why I think all good radical movements start with this first act of violence, which is uh, spiritual violence aimed at yourself. This is how at least I read the scene in one of my favorite Hollywood movies, and I don't think it's proper fascist propaganda fight club. You remember when Ed Norton, in a wonderful scene confronting his boss, beats himself. That's how you should begin. Change your dreams. I'm sorry if I was too long. On the other hand, I'm not sorry. <laughs>